The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 12 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC12. This is Secret Church 12, Episode 5. Thought we'd been going fast now. We're about to kick it up a notch. Uh, the goal is the goal is not to have to skip anything tonight. So here we go. We're gonna go to the prophets. Some of these I'll hit on. Uh, we'll hit on a little more in depth than others. But I want you to see overall. So these are prophets that are speaking to God's people, either in the in the in the middle of suffering or about to experience suffering as a result of sin. So we've seen Job some suffering, not as a result specifically of sin in somebody's life, but this is, this is suffering that's a result of sin. And part of my hope tonight is that you would see, that we would see together, when we follow our ways instead of God's ways, when we sin, we may think for a time that will be good for us, but in the end, it will always lead to suffering, sin. It's not, it's not wise to disobey God. So I want to show you in the prophets the severity of sin and suffering, and at the same time, I want to show you wonder of grace from God. So we'll begin with a perfect place to start. Isaiah 53, salvation through a suffering servant, one of the mountain peaks of the Old Testament. So get this set up in Isaiah, put Isaiah's call here in Isaiah 6. God is majestic. I want to show you a portrait of God. He's majestic, the terrifying holiness of God. There is no one like him. He is without error and without equal. See the total sovereignty of God. Terrifying holiness, total sovereignty, creator of the world, ruler of history, king of the nations, judge of all peoples. God is majestic, Isaiah shows us, and man is depraved, sinful to the core. From the very beginning, chapter 1 of Isaiah, we see a portrait of painstaking sin among God's people. They're trusting in foreign kings, they trusted in false god, and they're trusted in their things, Isaiah 2, 6 through 8. They trust in their leaders, and they trusted in themselves. God said, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So painstaking sin that leads to breathtaking grace from God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says that their sins will be removed, and their sins will never be remembered by him. God is majestic, man is sinful, but redemption is sure. That's the whole point of the book of Isaiah. God sends his prophet to deliver this promise that he will preserve his people. In the end, he will restore all peoples. Isaiah says, look for a spectacular sign. He prophesies in Isaiah 7, a virgin bearing a son whose name shall be called Emmanuel. Look for a spectacular sign. Look for a promised son. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, a child is born, a son is given, government upon his shoulder, wonderful counselor, mighty God. All of this leading up to Isaiah 53, where God says, look for a suffering servant. Starting in chapter 42 of Isaiah, we begin to see the servant of the father who will come. It's a reference to Jesus. When you get to the end of chapter 52, beginning of chapter 53, you see a stunning portrait of Jesus as the suffering servant. Isaiah says he will repulse, but he will redeem. Isaiah describes the coming Messiah, Jesus, saying he is a human servant with an appalling nature. A divine sovereign who will astound the nations. He says the Lord will reveal him, but we will reject him. Isaiah 53, 1-3. So we see his humiliation and our condemnation in those first three verses. Then Isaiah says that Christ, the Lamb of God, will be slaughtered so that we can be saved. We read these verses earlier in the evening. Isaiah says that this servant will endure the penalty of sin and take the place of sinners. On a cross, essence of sin, man substitutes himself for God. That's what sin is all about. Essence of salvation, God in his mercy substitutes himself for man. Isaiah says he will suffer in sinless silence, verses 7 through 9, and all will be satisfied in his substitution. 
Think about that on different levels. All satisfied. Who's satisfied? The Father will be satisfied through the suffering servant. God on high will display the full extent of His justice, judging and condemning and crushing sin. At the same time, He will demonstrate the full expression of His love by enduring and experiencing His own judgment against sin. And God will satisfy satisfy Himself and save sinners at the same time. This is where we remember that the cross is a demonstration of first and foremost, of the character of God. The cross is a picture of His holiness and His wrath and His justice and His righteousness on display before the cross is for anyone else's sake. The cross is for God's sake. The Father will be satisfied. The Son will be satisfied. At the cross, Jesus will, sh- will rescue the children of God in His death. He will show the power of God in His resurrection. He will accomplish the will of God in His exaltation. And the suffering servant will become the sovereign Savior. This is great. All this prophesied six or seven hundred years before Jesus even came. The Father will be satisfied. The Son will be satisfied. And sinners will be satisfied. Through trust in the servant, we will be vindicated before the Godder, God the Father. In our sin, we will be forgiven of sin. And we will be victorious with God the Son. Peter says, referring to Isaiah 53, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So how does God provide us salvation? Through a suffering servant. That's huge. Hold on to that. God provides salvation for sinners through suffering of his son. After Isaiah in the Bible, you come to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. God says, weep no more. I put here four passages that show Jeremiah's suffering and his brokenness over sin and the people of God. I put a brief outline here, the prophecy of Jeremiah, interplay between God's work in Jeremiah, God's work in Israel, and God's work in other nations. And central in those national messages for Judah. Now this was Isaiah, or Jeremiah prophesying in the southern kingdom. In the middle of that is Jeremiah 31. The setting is... The people of God were about to be overtaken by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was about to fall. They were about to be taken into exile. It's a low point. Suffering is a result of sin. And in the midst of that, God promises a new covenant. You see, the problem in the old covenant, as we've seen, is that the people of God were idolatrous. And they were immoral, turning from God to other gods. Immorality flowing from that. But the worst part was the people of God were incapable of anything different. They couldn't change their ways to accord with the word of God. So God gives them a promise of a new covenant. And it's glorious in Jeremiah 31 through 34. Jeremiah says we will receive a new covenant. And see the differences here. Law of God in the old covenant was written on stone tablets. In the new covenant, Isaiah 31, 31 through 34, or Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says in the new covenant, it will be written on human hearts. And God's word will transform his people from the inside out. Our worst enemy is fleshly religion, thinking that if you go to church and do this or that, that you'll be all right before God. That is not what we need. Our greatest need is spiritual regeneration. There's a difference there. Huge difference. Obedience to the law is not a condition for entering the new covenant, i.e. do these things and then you can be in covenant with God. Obedience to the law is a promise that we experience in the new covenant. Trust in God and he will give you the power to obey. That's what Jonathan Edwards said in that great quote right there. Which leads to the knowledge of God in the Old Covenant. We relate to God through flawed men in the Old Covenant. Limited admission of the presence of God. Priests who are offering sacrifices. Only a few certain people at a few certain times can enter into the presence of God. For most people, it was a distant encounter of the glory of God. But in the New Covenant, we are reconciled to God through a flawless man. And Jesus, our priest, has made the way for us to have unlimited access to the presence of God and a direct experience of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That was the promise. And Jeremiah said, we will comprise a new, commi- new community and we will anticipate a new city. A new city. 
Now, in Jeremiah's day, for them, the message was clear. In light of the words of Jeremiah, look forward. One day, Jerusalem will be restored. But for the message for us, and our day is even greater. For us, in light of the words of Jesus, we long for the recreation of a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and we will weep no more because God will make all things right. That's the book of Jeremiah. Leads into Jeremiah's laments in the middle of all this. Lamentations, a very important book. For feeling the weight of suffering and looking to the mercy of God in the middle of it. Steadfast mercies of God and the sufferings of men. So the crisis and lamentations came about as the Babylonians overran the city of Jerusalem, defiling the temple and ravaging the people. And lamentations is a blow-by-blow record of that destruction. The sin that had brought about their suffering was tragic, but, but it was just the city's about to be destroyed, but the Lord is in the right, Lamentations 1.18, in doing that. Their suffering was God-given. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? And it was severe. The tongue of nursing infants sticks to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. All of this suffering brought about questions that were profoundly intense. Are we forsaken by God? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? Lamentations 5.20, they cry. And their, their questions were eternally significant. Can we ever be forgiven? That question leads to the comfort in Lamentations. Key text, three, chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The writer found comfort in the fresh mercies of God. They're new every morning. Rooted in the unfailing love of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And the unceasing faithfulness of God. Great is your faithfulness. And this comfort, which gave rise, this comfort gave rise to a settled hope in the provision of God. The conclusion, the Lord is my my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. A deep confidence in the character of God. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. God does not delight in disciplining us, but He delights in turning us from our sin to Himself and to His satisfaction. That leads us then to an urgent desire to repent before God. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. All of these themes ultimately pointing us upward to the Christ of lamentations. If the Old Testament saints could cry in the middle of suffering, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. If they could say that in the midst of their suffering, how much more you and I, knowing that Christ has endured the penalty of sin in the place of His people. He has died for us, Romans 5, 8. Christ has endured the mercies of God for the sake of his people forever. So the challenge from Lamentations is this. Trust in the character of God. Confess the depth of your sins and bank on the mercies of Christ. Rely on his mercy. In the words of Richard Sims, none are fitter for for comfort than those that think themselves furthest off. 
steadfast mercies of God and the sufferings of men. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, a picture of God-centered suffering. Three brief observations. One, God judges all peoples for his glory. I'll execute judgment upon Moab. They will know that I'm the Lord. I'll execute vengeance on the Philistines with wrathful rebukes, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. God judges all peoples for his glory. God disciplines his people for his glory. This is what the house, this is what the Lord says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, the name you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God will judge his people for his glory. The people of God had exchanged the splendor of the true God for the senselessness of false gods. And as a result, they had exchanged the protecting presence of God for the punishing presence of God. And they were experiencing his discipline for the sake of God's name among the nations. God judges all peoples for his glory, his people for his glory. Thankfully, that's not all. God also saves his people for his glory. In Ezekiel, he promises them that he will anoint a new king. There's prophecies of the coming Christ, the servant of God and the shepherd of men who will inaugurate a new covenant, much like Jeremiah talked about, different from the old covenant. Old covenant marked by glorious but perpetual promises. The new covenant will be marked by permanent peace with God. God will form a new people. A people who are forgiven of their sin and filled with his spirit. I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel 36, 27. And he will bring them to a new place. Again, for them, they look forward to the city of Jerusalem. In that city, they would rebuild the temple. That's what, remember what the book of Ezra talks about. Promise for us, we look backward to the cross of Jesus where God made a way for you and I to know him. When Jesus died, what happened? Curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. So we are not building temples anymore because in Christ we have become the temple. You and I are the dwelling place of God. Why has he made us his dwelling place? For his glory. God saves his people from their sin and their suffering for the glory of his name. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Glorify God as the temple of the Holy Spirit. One conclusion from the book of Ezekiel then. We need a radically God-centered perspective of our suffering. As long as we view suffering as merely what it means for us, then we will miss the point. We must view suffering through the lens of not, not of what seems most right to us, but through the lens of what is most glorifying to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, however you suffer, do it for the glory of God. Daniel is God-centered suffering part two. He's in exile. The book of Daniel calls us in the midst of suffering. Two things. Look up and see the sovereignty of God. In the midst of suffering, it's all over Daniel. These different descriptions of God, titles of God, attributes of God. He's the God of heaven. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. He's the Lord of kings. He's the revealer of mysteries. He's the most high God. Daniel 4, 2. He's the king of heaven, says Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, saying God is the king of heaven. He's the God of Daniel. He's the living God. He's the ancient of days. Sovereignty of God in suffering. And seek the face of God in suffering. So Daniel prays consistently. He prays with courage. Even when he's thrown into a lion's den, he prays contritely, humbly. And yet he prays with confidence. Daniel 10, 12 through 21, that's a great picture of spiritual warfare in prayer. Reminds us that we are in a battle. There is a battle raging in the heavenlies. And when we fall on our knees in prayer, we are participating in a war. And God will win the war. So seek the face of God in suffering. And trust the promises of God in suffering. In the midst of suffering, look up. See his sovereignty. Seek his face. Look up. Trust his promises. And then look forward, knowing that one day God will redeem his people, promise in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And God will resurrect his people, Daniel chapter 12. And then God will reign over all peoples. This is 
great promise in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is the promise of a coming king who is human and he is divine, son of man with all authority. Before he went to the cross, Jesus told the high priest who was sitting as his judge, one day you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. This is a coming king with a coming kingdom that is universal for all nations, which is why Jesus, once he rises from the dead, says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the Son of Man prophesied from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And the Picture is, advance a kingdom that is universal for all nations and eternal for all time. Everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The book of Daniel says, in the midst of suffering, look up and look forward. God-centered suffering, part two. After Daniel, you got the story of Hosea. Story of an unfaithful people and an unreasonable God. God tells Hosea to marry a wife named Gomer. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, her name is Gomer. So, David Mary Heather? Okay. David Mary Gomer? She on the Andy Griffith show? What's that about? So that's the first problem. Second problem, Gomer was a prostitute. And God called Hosea to marry her in order to depict the covenant, the marriage relationship that he had with his people that had turned into adultery. So Hosea is the story of an unfaithful people. We find the people of God depicted as a wife who was adulterous and idolatrous and hypocritical and forgetful. She forgot her husband. The people had forgotten God. Hosea is a story of unfaithful people and a story of an unreasonable God. When you get to Hosea chapter 2 verse 14, the first word you see is therefore. And as soon as you see it, in light of all the things, the verses I put above, you expect wrath to be coming. You expect judgment to be coming. You cheat on God. You worship other gods. You forget God. And you pretend to worship in the middle of it when your heart is far from Him. You deserve condemnation. But what does God say? Therefore, in light of all your sin, I will allure you. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make her the valley, make the valley of Achor, valley of trouble, a door of hope. That's unreasonable, unfathomable. God says about his sinful people, his adulterous wife, I'm going to allure her and lead her and speak tenderly to her, give to her, restore her, protect her, betroth her, respond to her, establish her. And ultimately, I will pay the price for her. And Hosea goes to the auction block where Gomer's being sold to other men and he pays the price to bring her back. So lift your eyes from this story in the Old Testament to see the God who looks upon your sin, my sin, and our unfaithfulness to him. And he sends his son to allure us. All of this prophecy pointing to the day when on the cross, Jesus would be condemned like the harlot's children. Like Jezreel, he would become the place of bloodshed. Like no mercy, he was given no relief. And like not my people, he was cut off from the Father. On the cross, Here's, here's how, another way to understand Good Friday on the cross. Jesus was regarded as the unfaithful wife in our place. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. But everything in the Word and in experience shows us that He is. He will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. Then He will give to man the brains to make an axe from the iron, to cut down a tree and fashion it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. When a man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to that cross. And in so doing, will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come unto him and know the joy of sins removed and forgiven, to know the assurance of pardon and eternal life, and to enter in the prospect of the hope of glory with Him forever. This is even our God, and there is none like unto Him. 
Hosea, the story of unfaithful people who deserve eternal suffering and yet experience unreasonable love from a merciful God. Hosea, Joel. I'm going to fly through these next ones just to give an overview how these prophets speak to suffering. Joel prophesies that the day of the Lord will be a day of destruction for the resistant. For those who risk God, the day of the Lord in Joseph and in Joel refers to judgment upon God's people and judgment upon all peoples. Suffering is coming for sin, God says. The day of the Lord will be a day of destruction for the resistant, but it will be a day of salvation for the repentant. Repent, turn. We repent, and when we repent, God relents. We repent, God relents, forgives. Joel, Amos, amidst great social injustice, God demands justice from his people. So much suffering in the world then and today is due to injustice in man. And God demands justice from his people. And amidst great social injustice, God's bring justice to all peoples. The book of Amos makes clear that sin will ultimately never be excused. Our sin against God is grave. Sin will ultimately never be excused. Judgment will inevitably never be escaped. And what that means is our need for Christ is great. Obadiah, overall structure, coming of Eden, first part of the chapter, first part of the chapter slash book, coming restoration of Israel, last few verses. Overall point, God will ultimately assert his victory over all earthly powers. Mark it down. He will ultimately assert his victory over all earthly powers. Jonah, see that God possesses sovereign control over nature, storms and fish and worms. You see God's sovereignty over vomit. God's in control of it all. He possesses sovereign control over nature, over nations, Israel and Nineveh and all nations in God's sovereign control, we see that God's people cannot outrun God's pursuit. Praise God, His people can outrun His pursuit. He possesses sovereign control. God expresses merciful compassion towards sinful pagans and towards selfish prophets. Praise be to God that His capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. He delivers us from certain destruction when we turn and trust in Him. Mercy. Micah. In Israel, we see the ravages of our sin. See how sin is disorienting. You know how you hear stories of people wandering off in sin and you wonder, what are they thinking? But that's the way sin works. When we sin, we begin to approve the bad and condemn the good. Sin is disorienting. Sin is deceiving. We give ourselves to sin and we think we're not going to come to an account. We act as if God will never judge. Meanwhile, sin is destructive. And as we sin, we are asking disaster into our lives. Sin is destructive. We need a Savior, Micah shows us. And in Christ, we see the reign of our shepherd. In Christ, we see His reign. Micah prophesies a coming shepherd who will rescue His sheep and forgive His sheep and purify His sheep. And ultimately, Jesus, in Christ... He will protect. He protects his sheep. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. He protects his sheep. Nahum, portrait of God as our warrior who is jealous for his glory and our affection, who is just. He's a good warrior and he is sovereign. Nahum depicts the nation of Nineveh, a nation whose power was unrivaled in, in that day. But Nahum says God's power is unparalleled in any age and he will do whatever he wants with Nineveh. God is sovereign and he is judge. His judgment is terrifying for the enemies of God. Listen to these words. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. His judgment is terrifying for enemies of God. 
and his judgment is liberating for the people of God. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. His judgment is liberating. Book of Nahum is a clear reminder that we are at war. There is a spiritual battle that is raging in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. All creation lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. And all of God's children overcome the power of the evil one. 1 John 4, 4. How? Jesus triumphed over all enemies through his suffering. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus extends his kingdom even now through his church. And ultimately, Jesus will reign on the earth upon his return. Nahum assures us, that battles with sin and suffering in this world through Christ will ultimately lead, in, lead to victory. See the hope that these prophets are holding out in the midst of suffering. Now that leads us to Habakkuk, a particularly important book for understanding the questions we ask in the middle of suffering, questioning God. Habakkuk's a neat, unique prophet because all the other prophetic books, you have God speaking to his people through the prophet. But in Habakkuk, you have the prophet speaking to God on behalf of the people. The whole book is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk is watching as the people of God are suffering as a result of their sin. And the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, are about to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk is wondering where God is and why God is letting this happen. From the very first verse to the very last verse, we see this hard reality in Habakkuk. God uses painful experiences to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God uses painful experiences to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Now, let's unpack that. See the struggle of faith here. And Habakkuk's bold, honest questions before God. He comes before God with the deep questions of life. And that is good. He comes to God with deep, honest questions. And as a result, he comes out on the other side with deep, honest praise. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Habakkuk is asking some of the same questions we ask in suffering. Does God hear me? You ever cried out to God and it seems like you hear nothing but silence from heaven? Does God hear? Does God care? Habakkuk's living in the middle of evil and injustice and suffering. Yet God seems to be knew nothing about it. Do you not see all that's happening? I know you see it, so you not care. Is God good? That's one of the main questions of the book. One of the deepest questions of life. How can God be good and there be so much evil in the world? Is God holy? Why do you idly look at wrong? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot look in right wrong. Habakkuk's question, the very holy nature of God. How is it possible for him to be holy and look upon evil? Where is God's power, destruction, violence around me, strife and contention? Where are you, God? Where is your word? Verse 4, your law is paralyzed. It seems like it's not doing any good. What good is it? Justice go, never goes forth. It's perverted all around. Will God show that he is just? And the core question in the middle of all this is, is God worthy of my trust? These are real questions, aren't they? Familiar questions to us. Now what happens in response is God says, I am going to show my justice and my holiness and my power. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to bring my judgment on my people through the Chaldeans, through the Babylonians. And if you put yourself in a back of shoes, that was not the answer you were looking for. That only creates new problems. You're going to bring, you're going to take the most unjust people on the earth and you're going to use them to punish your people. Have you ever asked God questions in the middle of your suffering and the response that he seems to give leaves you with more questions in the end? It's the struggle of faith. And God responds to Habakkuk. And in God's response, I want to show you the life of faith. The central, book of the, message of, the central message of the book of Habakkuk is right here in 
Chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So how do you live by faith? You listen to the truth of God. Write this vision down. God says, make it plain. The word is the rock upon which his people stand. When God speaks, we listen. Even if it's not what we're looking to hear, God's word is always good. It's eternal. You will never go wrong in the midst of trial and suffering by listening to the truth of God. So start there. Listen to the truth of God. Second, lean on the timing of God. The vision awaits at the point of time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk wanted to see the justice of God now. And God said to him, wait. In due time, you will see my justice. Short-term circumstances always provide poor measurements for the long-term character of God. A life of faith says, I don't see it now. Honestly says, I don't see it now, but I trust in the long term and it's timing. God will show himself as the one who hears me, cares for me, the one who is good and holy and powerful and faithful and just and worthy of all my trust. Lean on the timing of God and live with your trust in God. The ultimate question here is, are you going to live with trust in yourself or are you going to live with trust in God? Now you think about that. First as it relates to your salvation. Live with your trust in God for your salvation. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and making whole case in Romans that we're saved by faith. This is rich right here. This is God saying, just as you trust in me for salvation, trust in me amidst suffering. So at the moment of your salvation, what did you do? You thrust yourself upon the faithfulness and righteousness and provision of God. That's how you're saved. Faith. Well, do the same thing in your suffering. Thrust yourself upon God and say, I can't do it. I need you to do it. I need you to be my strength and my sustenance and my satisfaction. And he will live by faith. Just as you were saved by faith, suffer by faith. And as you do, look forward to the triumph of God. Starting in verse 5 all the way through the end of chapter 2, God describes how his justice will reign. And Habakkuk realizes there's coming a day when God will show his glory. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is huge. Oh, Particularly if you're walking through suffering tonight, if you're walking through a difficult time right now, see this, know this. There is coming a day when evil and injustice and pain and suffering will be no more. And the glory and the goodness of the Lord will cover the whole earth. Mark it down, people of God. The day is coming when God will show the full expression of his glory all over the world. And these passing painful troubles will fade away. He will show himself to be perfectly good and holy and sovereign and wonderful beyond dispute. He will show his glory and we will stand in awe. All that leads to the song of faith. Last chapter of Habakkuk 3 is amazing. It is literally a song. It's intended to be a psalm used in worship. And Habakkuk in it reviews the faithfulness of God to his people in the midst of suffering in the past. And these are the conclusions he comes to. God is awesome. God is full of wrath. God is full of mercy. God is present in all creation. God is praised by all of creation. God has power over all things. Habakkuk recounts the power of God in creation. God has power over all things. God is sovereign in all things. God is the protector of his people. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He's the protector of his people. God is the deliverer of his people. And then we come to three of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. In the midst of suffering and waiting, surrounded by evil and pain. No visible signs that it's coming to an end anytime soon. Habakkuk concludes the whole book by saying, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no flood, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. God is our satisfaction. 
While we wait in darkness and suffering with no fruit on the vine or food in the fields, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God of my salvation. He's our satisfaction. God is our strength and God is our victory. In the midst of trials, he puts me on a mountaintop as a victor and conqueror. So it does seem weird to us, the hard reality of Habakkuk, that God would use painful events in our lives to accomplish his sovereign purposes. But can I remind you of something far, far weirder? Something far, far more difficult to understand? The comforting reality of the cross, that God uses his son's suffering to accomplish his people's salvation. One writer said God is always at work in human history to achieve his ultimate goal. And the means by which he chooses to pursue that goal may be as astounding as the destruction of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the figure of a man on a cross. Yes, God's ways in Habakkuk may seem strange to us and his ways in our lives may seem strange to us. But brothers and sisters, look to the mystery of the cross where God inflicts the pain of sin upon his son in order to bring us peace. And God, the Father, uses the cruel, torturous, otherwise unexplainable death of Christ to bring us life. And we find salvation in His suffering. And because of His suffering for our sins in our place, because of His victory on our, for our sins on our behalf, because of Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, we know, oh, put your faith and your hope and your trust in this. We know our suffering is temporary. God is sovereign over all things. Cancer are not sovereign. Tumors are not sovereign. Nations are not sovereign. Tornadoes are not sovereign. Doctors aren't sovereign. Disease, disaster, death, Satan, suffering. None of these are sovereign. God's sovereign and He is able and He is willing. And in His timing, He will bring about the end of all of those things. Our suffering is temporary, brothers and sisters, and our God is trustworthy. Many of you know the story behind Horatio Spafford's hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Spafford and his wife, Anna, had fallen on hard times as a result of the Chicago fire, and they experienced the death of their four-year-old son due to scarlet fever. They wanted to get away for various reasons, and so Spafford, his wife, and four daughters planned to set sail on a boat for England. Just before they were scheduled to leave, some came up. Spafford had to stay and send his family on ahead and join them as soon as possible. But a few days later, in the middle of the ocean, the ship on which Spafford's wife, Spafford's wife and his daughters were, were sailing collided with another ship, and all four of Spafford's daughters drowned. Spafford got a telegram from his wife in England on the other side of the ocean that said, saved alone. As quickly as possible, he got, a sh- got on a ship to go to his grieving wife. And during that journey over the ocean, the captain of the ship told Spafford when they got to the place, passed over the waters where his daughters were at the bottom of the ocean three miles underneath. And on that day, Spafford wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast tossed me to, taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin or the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. For me be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine more. For in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Habakkuk. Zephaniah. Overall structure I put there. Overall point. One day, God's people will exchange their shame for his honor. 
I will exult over you with loud singing. You will no longer suffer reproach. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Haggai and Zechariah, these books related to each other. Messages clear in both of them. Repent of sin. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. I will return to you. Repent of sin and the fear of God by the Spirit of God. Repent of sin and renew your strength. Renew your strength for the glory of God. And Zechariah, Haggai, give us a promise of a king who is coming. Zechariah 9, Zechariah 8. All this leading the last book in the Old Testament. What I put here from Malachi is basically what the Old Testament has taught us about ourselves. And these things are clear all over Malachi and they sum up all that we've seen in the Old Testament. One, we are dead in our sin. Dead in our sin. We are prone to defame God. We are prone to dishonor one another. Sin is too subtle in us. It is too seductive to us. We know it in every one of our lives. Sin is too strong for us. And as a result, we are desperate for a Savior. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. To show us the depth of sin within us and the depth of suffering around us. And to show us we need a Savior above us. Notice this. The problem of evil and suffering in the world is ultimately a problem with people's hearts. Our hearts. And only Jesus can change the hearts of evil people. This is huge. Particularly when we think about suffering and things like poverty and human trafficking and sex slaves and injustice around the world and we think we need to fight for justice and we do but we need to remember that proclaiming the gospel of jesus is the foremost fundamental necessary non-negotiable way to address evil and suffering and injustice in the world we can try to change systems and eradicate practices when it comes to these issues but to work against evil and suffering in the world apart from proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ will ultimately be futile This is huge. There are so many causes, even in the church today, that are being trumpeted. We need to address this and this and this and this in the world. Abortion, orphan care, sex trafficking, slavery, poverty, on and on and on. And these are issues that need to be addressed. I want to trumpet these issues. But we are fooling ourselves if we think these issues can be addressed apart from verbal, intentional, clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the answer to the evils and the sufferings of the world. Only Jesus can change human hearts. So consider what the Old Testament has taught us, not just about ourselves, but God. Summing it up here, He is overwhelmingly gracious. God stays His wrath. In wrath, He remembers mercy. He is gracious. At the same time, He is inexpressibly holy. God does not toy with sin or sinners. He is infinitely holy and worthy of total obedience. He is consistently faithful to His people. Great is His faithfulness. Page after page in the Old Testament, people's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness. And He is completely just. He will demonstrate His righteousness. He will demand our repentance and he will display his wrath. God is just. He is ultimately sovereign. Hope we've made that clear. His perfection, his purposes never change. He's in control of everything that happens in the Old Testament. There's nothing out of his control here. He is unquestionably supreme. Malachi 1.11 From the rising to the setting of the sun, his name will be great among the nations. Every place incense will be offered to his name. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He is the only Savior. He is the only hope. And he promises that he will preserve a remnant and he will provide a redeemer. Last book of the Old Testament makes clear that God will send his messenger. The Lord whom you seek will come to you, Malachi 3.1. Yes. And that leads us to the Gospels in the New Testament. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.